Well, what is truth? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. John chapter 18. There's a great difference between myth and truth. Myths may try to contain and teach some truth about life, but they are fundamentally fiction. They're fictitious. They're not true, and they're not the truth. They're stories. In New York Times Square this Christmas, just at the moment, the American Atheist Association has put up a huge billboard with a picture of Santa Claus and underneath it a picture of Jesus on the cross. And the words under Santa Claus are, keep the merry, and the words under the cross are, dump the myth. And so we're confronted again at Christmas time with the question, what is truth? What is myth? What are the facts of history? What actually did happen in the past? Was there a Santa Claus or a St Nicholas? Or is it all myth? Was there a man called Jesus and was he crucified? Did he die that way? And of course, part of the question of the facts of history is, what can we know about those facts? With what degree of certainty? I mean, there's a difference between the facts of history of the past, what actually happened, and the facts of history as we write it, what we can know happened or don't know happened. What are the facts of Santa Claus? Uh, leaving aside reindeers, chimneys uh, and Mrs Claus and other ridiculous things, the history behind the myth is supposed to be that of Saint Nicholas, a bishop of Myra in northern Turkey, who is said to have been born around 270 AD. However, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church says scarcely anything is historically certain about him. And the New International Dictionary of the Christian Church says very little is known about Nicholas. Tradition has it that he was imprisoned and persecuted during the persecutions of Diocletian. And after release, he is said to have attended the great Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. However, as the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church says, it's most improbable as he is not in any of the early lists of bishops present at the council, nor was he referred to in the writings of Athanasius. The earliest reference we have to St Nicholas is a church built in his honour in 565 AD, that is, roughly 300 years after he was said to be born, was the very first reference we have to him. The rise of his popularity actually happened after 1087, when some people of Bari in South Italy claimed to have found his remains and removed them to Italy and built a church there. That is, some 800 years after his birth was St Nicholas ever purported as being of any importance. Now, I'm not sure that we should call St Nicholas a myth, more like a legend. Something most likely happened. There may well have been a bishop in Turkey called Nicholas. But on the basis of that event, whatever and whatever he did, 
exaggerated stories have been told that grew and grew over time. So I'm not sure we'd call him a myth, a completely fictitious, a fictitious story, trying to convey a, a deeper message, but rather a legend, which in its present American form has seriously perverted the Christian message, because now this man comes in order to give children who are good presents, when of course the Christian message is about the Lord Jesus Christ coming in order to give himself to bad people. It's almost the exact reverse of the Christian message. But when you compare, or rather contrast, St Nicholas with Jesus, the one who's portrayed as crucified by the atheists and called a myth, what are the facts about Jesus? Well, we're informed by first century non-Christian sources, both Roman and Jewish sources, as well as, of course, Christian sources from the first century, that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem by the Roman procurator of Judea at the time, Pontius Pilate. This is not a matter of legend that grew over time, but consistently reported from within the generation in which it happened back there in the first century. Indeed, closer than that, within his generation, within 20 years of his death, it was written about as normal, just as happened, just in the course of accidentally writing, it is mentioned that it happens. Indeed, the reporting of the even more extraordinary event of his resurrection is recorded in that period of time, which is reported consistently and given reason for why there was a massive cultural shift amongst Jews who have moved from their strict monotheism and their Saturday Sabbatarianism into a Trinitarianism and a belief on Sunday being the day of the resurrection and the worship of a man as God. That all happens in the first century within 20, 30 years of Jesus. And not only that, it grew to be so large in the community that by 64 AD, the emperor of Rome, Nero, when he burnt the city of Rome, was able to blame the Christians because they were so numerous. The other end of the empire within 30 years. Most of us can remember 30 years ago, can't we? And those of us who can't, we're so glad that you still have youth and energy on your side. It's not that long ago, 30 years, to be able to say that we can remember what happened. That is, I agree with the atheists. We should dump the myth and we should keep the merry. But if you want to dump the myth, get rid of Santa Claus. And if you want to keep the merry, then discover Jesus, who takes happiness and merriment to a whole new level. For the claim of Christmas is that God, in the person of Jesus, came into the world to deal with our problems and our issues. And in the coming of Jesus Christ, humanity has a whole new relationship with God based on forgiveness, based on new birth, a new way of life that has transformed the lives of millions of people across the world and down the centuries and brings new joy and happiness to societies as well as individuals, which finds its expression in the marvellous music that we Christians sing and have taken to the whole world, who sing our carols and 
play them in their shops. But let's go back into history and look at the man who crucified Jesus, Pontius Pilate. Let's look at Pilate's history. For we know of Pilate outside the New Testament as well as inside the New Testament. Pilate was the Roman procurator of Judea. He was appointed by Emperor Tiberius in 21 AD. But Pilate is hardly remembered in history except for his contact with this prisoner, Jesus. Judea wasn't the centre of the universe and to be appointed as the procurator of Judea in the whole Roman Empire was to be the Lord Mayor of West Wyalong. It's not the the centre of the universe. It's not the kind of man you are going to record in history uh, as really... Sorry, does anybody come from West Wyalong? Good. Okay, it's not really the centre of the universe. Judea was not the centre of the universe. And here is this procurator, but he was an official Roman. He was recorded as the official procurator of the time. And he is remembered like all the other procurators aren't remembered. He is remembered because... He met Jesus. That's why we remember Pontius Pilate. The Jews brought Jesus to Pilate to be executed. Pilate was ruling in Jerusalem at the time. And Pilate was notoriously violent and happy to kill Jewish insurgents. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian and he wrote in the history of the Jews that he wrote, he wrote how Pilate antagonised the Jews from the time of his arrival in Jerusalem. Another first century historian called Philo, he wrote how he continued, Pilate continued to annoy the Jews. He was violently oppressive in the way in which he ruled Judea. Philo described Pontius Pilate as, by nature, rigid and stubbornly harsh and of spiteful disposition and exceeding wrathful man. Philo also speaks of the bribes, the acts of pride, the acts of violence, the outrages, the cases of spiteful treatment, the constant murders without trial and the ceaseless and most grievous brutality. This man was known (laughs) and he was known to the Jews as he was appointed by the Romans to oppress them. Now, all that description agrees with what we know of the man from the New Testament. For inside the New Testament, here in John's Gospel, chapter 18, we see a man famed for his miscarriage of justice, seeking in political cunning to run a court where an innocent man can be executed without qualm, and more than executed, crucified the cruel Roman way of stamping their authority over conquered peoples in their empire. Uh, No Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified. It was beneath their dignity to be put up on a stake and to be made a public example and spectacle of in shameful nudity, slowly dying in terrible agony as the birds gather around their heads to gorge themselves on the human carcass that is developing. No, you couldn't do that to a Roman. But a Jew? <laughs> yeah, of course you could. Pilate knew what it was the Jew is doing and he knew how wrong it was. John's Gospel presents for us not so much the trial of Jesus, but Pilate's trial. 
as he faces his 15 minutes of fame and fails completely. The question of the trial is, who is king? Jesus is accused by the Jews of being the king of the Jews or claiming to be the king of the Jews. It's interesting really because it's not a phrase that Jesus uses much. In fact, it's hardly used in John's Gospel and most of the times it's used in John's Gospel, it's used on the lips of Pontius Pilate. The Jews, though, they understood what Jesus was claiming as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah as to how the king of Jerusalem, the king of God, the king of the Jews would come riding on a donkey, not on a war horse, not in a chariot, but a donkey. A different kind of king was going to be the king of the Jews. They knew who Jesus was claiming to be by his life and by his teaching and by his miracles. They knew that he was claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the king, the long-awaited king of the Jews who would rule as king in the kingdom of God. They knew that's who Jesus was claiming to be and they didn't want him. They ruled Jerusalem. They ruled Judea. They were the leaders of the community. They didn't want this upstart from Nazareth up in Galilee. Uh, Nazareth in Galilee is, you know, Mount Isa in Queensland. You know, if you're living as the ruler of Sydney, who wants some bloke who's grown up in Mount Isa to come in and take over the city? It really was an insult to the Jewish leaders. Again, I've just insulted people from somewhere else, haven't I? I should have stuck at West Wyalong because uh, I know no one comes from there, from here. But who wants this country bumpkin to come and run Judah? This is not the person that God has chosen. They rejected Jesus. And so they accused him before the Roman officials of being a revolutionary of challenging the authority and the sovereignty of Rome, it was ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous when you think about it. But it was a high time of political unrest in Palestine. The Jewish people were not an easy people to rule over. There were Jewish revolutionary movements and insurgencies taking place and Passover in particular, the time that this was happening, Passover in particular was a time when the city was full to overflowing with, with Jewish pilgrims and with nationalistic ferment and sentiment. As we read John 18, how Pilate's concern was whether Jesus was the king of the Jews. So 18 verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response didn't fit into Pilate's expectations. For Jesus spoke in verse 36 of a kingdom that was not of this world. He answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. That's not an answer that he's really expecting and it doesn't really answer his question. Yes or no, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 37, as Pilate asks. So, well, then you are a king. You're saying you're a king. And Jesus replied in verse 37, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone 
who is of the truth listens to my voice. If the Jewish nation wasn't hard enough to handle, this bloke, this prisoner was particularly difficult for his answer kept on turning the tables on Pilate. Throughout the trial event, and of which we've only read a small section, it goes on into chapter 19, we keep on pondering who is in control in this situation. The Jewish leaders keep pressuring Pilate to do what he doesn't want to do, but he gives in to them, although they're the oppressed people that he's oppressing. They won't come into the court lest they be defiled. So Pilate has to do some shuffle diplomacy. He runs inside to talk to Jesus, then he goes out to report to the Jews, then he comes back inside to Jesus. Then he, Who's running this show that he can't actually sit in the court and demand they come to him? They, of course, demonstrate the immoral hypocrisy of organised religion, for they demand to remain ceremonially pure and not come into the court because of the Passover, while at the same time they're organising to murder an innocent man. There is no much more hypocrisy that's available to you than that, isn't it? To actually remain ceremonially pure while you murder. But it's poor Pilate who looks like he's on trial. For as he finds no guilt, there's nothing wrong with this man, there's nothing wrong with the accused, he knows it's a Jewish plot. But he can't work out what the plot's about. After all, this man's harmless. Look at him. There's no way that he's going to be a political threat to Rome or even to me. It's the Jews themselves who are the political threat. And why have the Jews handed over one of their own to me to be crucified? I mean, he has no army. He has no militaristic pretensions. To see him as the king of the Jews is laughable. Indeed, Pilate sees the joke in that. He gets the satisfaction at the end of putting up a sign over the head of the man he crucifies, declaring that he is the king of the Jews. That's really rubbing the salt into the Jews. They don't like it. They don't want it. But that's what he was accused of. I've killed him as the king of the Jews. And that's what we Romans do to opposing kings. And that's the kind of king the Jews would have, isn't it? Pathetic. That's the best king they're likely to come up with. And so Pilate can laugh at the king of the Jews. But at the same time you can see Pilate trying to wiggle room his after to appease the Jews, appease everybody. He knows Jesus is without guilt, so he wants to get him off. On the other hand, he knows the Jews want to kill him and he's got to run this country and keep peace and he doesn't want a civil war breaking out now. So, his great idea, wonderful piece of political rhetoric, isn't it? I give you a prisoner every Passover, it's Passover, I'll give you this one. To which they call out, no, we want Barabbas, Barabbas, the robber. Or as Luke describes Barabbas, he was more than a robber, he was a murderer. In fact, he was an insurrectionist. He was captured in one of the great insurrections against Rome. So here is the man who would cause no problem to Rome and now what I've wound up is having to release an insurrectionist back out, a murderer back out into the public. It was a real loss. And as we read on into chapter 19, we can see Pilate finally concedes to the Jews 
out of political pressure and blackmail. You let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. But if you think that this sounds like an Easter talk rather than a Christmas one, look at the claim of Christmas that Jesus made in his response to Pilate in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Did you see the Christmas claim in that verse? For this purpose I was born, said Jesus. He was born. He was born as a man. It's critical to Christianity that Jesus is a historical figure. Not a myth, not a legend, but a man. He wasn't a mythical character, but a real man of flesh and blood like any other man. For he came to be our representative and a substitute for us, paying the price for our sin, dying in the place of humans. And so he was born. And of this we celebrate at this time of the year and because we celebrate the time and the place in which he was born. Oh, it wasn't necessarily the 25th of December. We don't know which day of the year he was born on. And it was sometime before he was supposed to be born. It was before 4 BC because Herod the Great was the king at the time of his birth and Herod died in 4 BC. And that's caused because the medieval dating system that we have is marginally wrong. And so King Herod died before 4 BC, so we need Jesus was born 5 or 6 BC. And he was born, we know where, in Bethlehem, and he was raised, and we know where, in Nazareth, and he was fully human. Yet the claim of Christmas is more than that he was born. It's also that he came into the world. As he says to Pilate in verse 37, for this I was born and for this I came into the world. This was his repeated claim. And that's why his birth is the birth that is celebrated around the world 2,000 years later. Because this is not just another baby that's born. There are millions and billions of babies that have been born. Why? You and I were once babies that were born and the world doesn't celebrate my birthday and I guess it doesn't celebrate your birthday and we don't have the whole shop stopping and the whole world stopping to be able to sing happy birthday to Philip Jensen. It's a great relief. But this is not just the commencement of new life. This is not just the birth of another human within the world. This is somebody from outside the world coming into the world as a man, as a baby. Jesus said back in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is the claim of Christians, and this is the claim of Christmas. This is why we sing, O come all ye faithful, God from God, light from light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. O come, let's adore him, Christ the Lord. 
Or again we sing in that great one, Hark the Herald Angel sings, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Oh, Pilate, Pilate, Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a different order altogether that has been spoken of here. Am I a king? Not by way you mean king. I have been born, I have come into the world. But the claim of Christmas is not just that God has become man, but also for a particular purpose he has come. It's expressed in different ways in the New Testament, different passages. He came to do his Father's will. Or he came to save sinners. Or he came to redeem us from the law. But here confronted with Pilate, he said, I've come to bear witness to the truth. You know what a telling attack that was on that particular man who is being politically forced to believe the lies of false witnesses. Whereas Jesus comes to witness to truth. What an attack on a man who lived his life on the basis of lies and deceit and trickery and had a kingdom based on brute force and power. This is the kingdom not like this world, but this is the kingdom based on truth, on justice and on righteousness, the kingdom not of this world but of heaven. That's the truth. That is the kingdom I've come to establish. I've come to bear witness to the truth. And there's a real barb in the tail at verse 37, isn't there? Right at the end of it. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, like any of us, knows the ring of truth when we hear it. But our problem, like his problem, is that we prefer lies to truth. We want people to tell us the truth, but we don't always tell other people the truth, do we? And we only really want to hear the truth ourselves when it confirms what we already believe or it tells us positive things about ourselves or, it, or they give us the freedom to accept or reject whatever's being said. But Pilate is being confronted with the truth as Jesus confronts all mankind with the truth. And so he's caught in the headlights like a paralysed animal and we read Pilate's response, one of the great statements of all humanity, one of the great statements of political expediency. No politician has ever done better than Pontius Pilate on this occasion. When it's one of those statements that will speak with real cogency to the postmodern mind today, of course, it's one that proves Jesus' point precisely. Let me read it to you in its context again. So you see it, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's a marvellous statement, isn't it? 
He's remembered for his three-line question, what is truth? It's such a pathetic answer. It sounds so profound. Above the intellectual squabbles of truth and lies I sit. Above the squabbles of those minor minds that pursue the truth. It sounds so superior, a question, not an answer. Well, what is truth? Let's enter into a philosophical debate and discussion here of great depth and profundity. But of course it's the coward's castle. Placing yourself outside contradiction and error. Shooting down lesser mortals who believe something and avoiding having to confess your ignorance. Avoiding the hard work that is required to discover the truth. Avoiding the inconvenient and uncomfortable truth that may call you to account. It's the coward's castle to say, well, truth, how do we know there is such a thing as truth? I mean, everybody, I've got my truth, you've got your truth. What's truth? It doesn't really matter. It's intellectual cowardice. Not to commit yourself to even answer the question. Typical political expediency to avoid the hard questions when at the very time you're making the hard answers and decisions. At the very point that you're going to send this man to death, you're saying there's no such thing as truth? Then why kill him? Except brute power. There is no truth, but your life and death hangs on the false witnesses. And so answering Pilate proves Jesus' point that those who do not listen to the truth will not receive his witness. For he comes to establish a kingdom, God's kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom of truth and justice, of grace and forgiveness, of mercy and righteousness. And so we come again to Christmas when we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, the wonder of his love. You see, when you hear the truth and know the truth, merriment comes. What greater happiness can come than this great truth that Jesus is king? No, no, don't get rid of the merry. Dump the myth. Dump the Santa Claus. Grasp the truth of Jesus. I pray that each and every one of you here may know him as the true king of your life. And knowing him, we'll have a wonderful Christmas singing his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he should come into this world as your son and live and die and rise again for our salvation. Thank you that he came to bear witness to the truth. So pour your spirit into our hearts and minds that we may hear the truth, recognise the truth, and be changed and transformed by the truth to give our lives to that which is true, namely your Son, in whom we pray.
Amén.